Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. Usually, after I've done a little research, I have a pretty good idea about the guest I'm going to be talking with on the episode and where the focus of the episode's going to center. I knew that my guest this episode, Joe Moreland, was part of the 1970s and 1980s group of young birders in California who contributed so much to the advancement of birding in the ABA area. I knew that he taught birding classes, and I knew that he was on the California Bird Records Committee. I didn't know that he studied physics at MIT before his passion for drama led to a change to a humanities major. I didn't know that he didn't just teach birding classes, he taught multiple classes a week for over 40 years as an adult education program through the College of San Francisco. I knew that he was on the Bird Records Committee, but I didn't know that he both chaired the Records Committee and is now the webmaster for the Records Committee. But most of all, I didn't know that he was going to be such a good storyteller. It's been my privilege to talk with Joe Moreland on this episode of the Bird Banner Podcast. Help me welcome Joe to the Bird Banner Podcast, episode number 117. Joe, welcome to the podcast. I've seen your name at one of my favorite websites to just kind of scour is uh, Dan Robertson's uh, Who is Who in the California Birding in, in the olden days, so to speak, for, for you at least. And uh, whenever I get to talk to somebody who's uh, highlighted on that website, I know I've got a guest who's been around at least for sure. So welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing really well. I stay got Got out a little in the rain this morning. We're in a kind of a, in the Northwest, we're in a really rainy section here, floods and places and things, but it's been pretty good. Good. Yeah. Went looking for some geese from my car window today. Didn't have any luck for anything unusual, but I thought that'd be a way to stay dry. Sure. So uh, you are are bi-coastal. You grew up on the East Coast and then uh, moved to the West Coast. Tell me about your story, uh, your birding story, and a little bit about your life story. Yeah, I I grew up uh, in a place called Pearl River, New York. It was uh, right on the New Jersey line in New York. And um, I had always had some kind of an interest in in different kinds of wildlife. I don't know if you remember those little golden guides that you could buy for a buck. And they had uh, reptiles and amphibians and insects. And I had a menagerie in my room, much to my mother's dismay. Uh, with uh, all kinds of uh, larvae and turtles and other stuff. Um, And birds was one of the last ones, because when you're a little kid, it's hard to get into birds, I think, because you can't touch them. You can't pick them up, you know. And um, so um, it took a while before I got a a pair of binoculars. And even before that, I would go out into our local woodpatch and sort of sit down by a stream and watch the birds come in close. And I got to know what some of them were. And um, at uh, some point, I was probably uh, 10 or 11 years old, a friend of mine was in the Boy Scouts. And the Boy Scouts was having an expert from the Audubon Society come in to talk about birds. And they invited me in, even though I was not a member of the Boy Scouts. And I went there and this guy, Gene Brown, very clean cut ex-army guy came in there and he was showing slides of birds and wanted to know if anybody knew what those birds were. And the kids knew the blue jay and the cardinal and, uh, uh, you know, some of them were the robin. And then he started showing things like chestnut-sided warbler and black-throated blue warbler. And there's one kid in there who kept saying, oh, that's a chestnut-sided warbler. and That's a black-throated blue warbler. And that kid was me. And... (laughs) 
And so I have no idea how I knew those birds at that point. But uh, after the program, he came over and he talked to me. He was very encouraging. And he wanted me to come to their Audubon meeting. And uh, so I managed to get my parents to take me to the Audubon meeting there. And there were all of these people. And the 57 checklist had just come out and they were changing the name of the red eyed toey to the to the uh, Rufus sided toey. And there were they were outraged with this. <laughs> this. This would never go. You know? yeah. And and I loved it. I said, these are my people. You know, they, they understand my language. Uh, you know, and uh, so, you know, I, I kind of got interested in it in uh, in uh, in school there and uh, and continued on with that at some point. Um, and then I uh, I uh, I went to college at uh, MIT and uh, uh, enjoyed that quite a bit, but didn't do very much bird watching there then. And I never took any biology classes. Okay. Uh, and not, not after, not after high school. And then I got in the, in the publishing business and then, uh, ended up out in, uh, in California, uh, uh about 1969 and, uh, managed to, uh, get started a little bit in, uh, in California, but it took a while before I became a very serious birder, not until I moved to the Bay area. And, uh, what really, you know, changed it for me, I think was meeting Van Remsen mm -hmm. on a pelagic trip in Monterey Bay. And I had seen his name everywhere in uh, uh, the local newsletter, and uh, he clearly knew what he was doing. And he was a brilliant graduate student at uh, UC Berkeley. And uh, I was bugging him about how to tell sooty shearwaters from short-tailed shearwaters and things like that. And he was very accommodating. You know, I, I you know, was really uh, surprised. And he started to, at some point there, I didn't even have a car. And he was, you know, getting me out there into these, these field trips. Mm -hmm. and, um, and immediately we started birding, like, all over the whole state. You know, uh, and, uh, you know, he invited me and uh, then we went and picked up Rich Stallcup, mm -hmm. uh, who was an absolutely amazing birder who I met for the first time through Van. And um, and then there was, you know, um, these these trips out to Death Valley. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Rich Stallcup was out there at, at uh, Deep Springs College mm -hmm. and he hears a chip note. And he says, Northern water thrush. And I'm going, yeah, right. You know? Gotta be kidding me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, <laughs> from a chip note, you know, and then he goes and he sees it. And then, you know, and I said, well, you know, Tim Manolis comes over and he says, well, you know, there's a Northern water thrush here. I said, well, I've already seen one. And uh, he said, but have you seen it in California? And I said, no, well, you've got to go see this. It's in California. Like, you know, suddenly like, this was this thing about the California list. I've got to do work on my California list. So I went over and I looked at this water thrush and it was just, you know, and then we headed on down to the Salton Sea and we, um, uh, we, we, we parked in a rest area like at 4 a.m. Mm -hmm. and uh, the sprinklers went on about 4.30. <laughs> <laughs> and then we met Guy McCaskey. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. 
who was the dean of California birding, uh, who I had brief knowledge of in the past. In fact, he led a, a, a pelagic trip that I went on in San Diego. I first moved to San Diego when I first got out to California. Okay. Uh, and, um, and he was, you know, just kind of amazing. There was all of these tropical herons coming into the Salton Sea and black skimmers and all of this stuff. And uh, there was this huge mob of bird watchers down there at the Salton Sea, uh, sort of wading in the water and you know, traveling down the mouth of the new river. And it was, uh, it was kind of amazing. Uh, I, I wasn't really prepared to wade into the muck of the new river. And, um, I did. And, uh, I was wearing the wrong kind of shoes. I was wearing these uh, kind of canvas shoes with rubber soles that had like suction cups on them and they stuck down into the muck. And, uh, so, uh, I was, I was trying to get out there and these old ladies, like, you know, 65 year old ladies were just passing me on both sides, heading on out, following Guy McCaskey out to the mouth of the new river. And I was just slogging because my feet were sinking into the muck. And finally I got to a place where the river sort of forked. And there was a like an orange crate that had flown, you know, gotten out there. And I sat down on this orange crate, and the orange crate started to sink. (laughs) (laughs) But any anyway, I just decided I wasn't going to make it out there, and I started to slog back. But I looked at some of the birds, and I saw, you know, the the clapper rail, the eumenensis clapper Mm -hmm. rail that occurs in there, and there were least bitterns and all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, I had gull billed terns, but I was pretty much, you know, sort of by myself trying to figure out how the hell to get out of here because there was no way out of that river uh, except to go back to where I, we had started. Um, anyway, that was one of many, many trips to the Salton Sea. I, uh, we, uh, uh, you know, hooked up with a, a bunch of crazy people who really cared about their California list. Mm-hmm. And uh, it seemed like almost every weekend we were headed off to Southern California to go look for, I don't know, an Eastern Phoebe or whatever it was that we thought we needed to we desperately needed to see and needed it for your list. Yeah. I, I, I needed it for my list. So anyway, so, so you became a lister. Good for you. Uh, it, it, chases are fun like that, you know, going off to these, you know, hotspots in California. It seems like it almost invented the, the uh, migrant trap, the, uh, the places to find rarities. I, I'm sure it didn't, but it seems like back in the sixties, that was just the latest thing, you know, the Death Valley, the Salton Sea, you know, just a handful of, you know, places that were obscure, but had something special about them that attracts vagrants. And, and, uh, and then they sort of popped up all over the place, I think. Well, the, the thing is, back in those days, the theory was that there was a tendency of Western birds to show up in the East. Mm-hmm. And if you bird it in the east, you might uh, get lucky and see a Western kingbird or something like that, and or Western tanager. But the idea that Eastern birds would show up in the West was relatively new. Oh. And it came about, I think, from Guy McCaskey and Rich Stalkup, who um, uh, sort of met each other around the same time before I got out to here to California. This would have been in the in the uh, mid to late 60s, I guess. Um, And they were looking at records from the Farallon Islands. Mm -hmm. And the Farallon Islands had some strange stuff like 
gray catbird and a black-throated green warbler. And, uh, you know, somebody had gone out there and collected uh, these little uh, stray birds. Um, and this was um, before the, the Farallon Islands was occupied by, uh, by a, a bird observatory. Mm -hmm. um, but um, uh, the two of them had a little contest to see who was going to be the first one to find a vagrant. And um, my recollection is that uh, they both found a, well, yeah, they found a black and white warbler or something like that. And, and they both, have, uh, I don't know who actually won that thing, but uh, it was uh, Rich Stalkup that kind of pioneered going out to Point Reyes. Oh, yes. Uh, where there are isolated clumps of, of uh, cypress trees that are planted as windbreaks. And uh, it sticks out in the ocean. And um, Dave DeSanti started to do some more organized research on this vagrant thing. And he worked out on the Farallon Islands. And he, he was one of the people that we birded with, by the way. He was on a lot of those trips down to Southern California, too. Right. But for his, he was a, a, an academic. He was uh, getting his PhD at uh, Stanford. And for his PhD dissertation, uh, he was doing this research out on the Farallon Islands where they banned these birds. And he was put them in what's called a Kramer orientation cage. Mm -hmm. it's, like a, it's like a cage that's open up to the sky and it has an ink pad in the middle and a strip of paper around the outside. And the bird sits in there and it looks at the sky and it jumps in what direction it wants to go. And he concluded that there was, there, well, you see these tracks and they're going this way and that way, but they are not random. And um, he came up with this, this theory of mirror image misorientation. Okay. And that if you, if you basically look at the uh, ranges of these birds, they have to fly east to get to South America. Right. Because yeah. South America is entirely east of everything. So yeah. these, these birds are apparently like they've got dyslexia or something. They've got right and left reversed. And so instead of flying east and then south, they're flying west and west and then south. And mm -hmm. they're probably mostly going to disappear over the ocean. Mm -hmm. They're not going to make it. But they keep doing it anyway. And uh, basically what he did was he cut out the, the range map of the bird on, in Canada or wherever it was and mm -hmm. balanced it on a pin so you could see where the geographic center of that was. And mm -hmm. then calculated the expected arrival times on the West Coast versus arrival times at New Jersey, for example. Okay, along, along very cool. New Jersey. And he found that, you know, the birds are expected to be late in getting to California because the distances are longer. Right. And they are, you know, it, it actually, it turned out that his hypothesis was largely correct. That doesn't explain all of this, but uh, still it's, um, it was kind of uh, seminal work. And I, I kind of enjoyed that. Very cool. Uh, so you were uh, involved with a lot of the, uh, you know, pioneers at uh, chasing down the vagrants and, and discovering new vagrant traps. I, I was at Point Reyes just recently. I drove back San Diego to Washington, stopped at San Francisco for a day, and then went out to Point Reyes with a friend. And uh, it's a wonderful place. I was there years ago, got my life acorn woodpecker there. and It's some, some really cool things. But I know that the point there can be really fabulous. And peninsulas in general, I think, are, can be pretty special. 
right? Kind of congregate births. Yeah, they can. Um, and uh, w- what's actually happening is the birds are out over the ocean. They're migrating at night. Oh, okay. And, and when the sun comes up, they want to drop down and rest and feed. Mm-hmm. And if they're on the uh, if they're down there and what they see is the ocean, they turn around and go back. Mm-hmm. That's the most efficient way of making sure that they're going to be able to reach land. Mm-hmm. So I think the reason they hit the Farallons in places like Point Reyes is they're really coming off the water from oh, the okay. west. They, they sort of overshot, you think? Yeah, and they overshot. And so what they do is that triggers, that's a stress situation, and it triggers reverse migration. And reverse migration happens for other things, too. Like, you know, that's how we get tropical kingbirds and stuff. Sure. So, yeah. Yeah. So very cool stuff. Uh, so you got involved uh, in a big way, kind of... Uh, some people would say obsessively uh, with a a really avid group of birders in the sixties, late sixties, early seventies in California. You were in Northern California by that time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was living in Emeryville at that time. Okay. And uh, you went on to teach uh, ornithology at uh, city university in California. There had to be somewhere between MIT without a biology course and teaching ornithology. How did that come about? Yeah. Uh, what, what happened is that um, actually Van's roommate was a guy named Bill Principe. And at that time, there was a rare bird alert in Southern California. Uh, and there was one other one in Massachusetts that had been mm-hmm. running for a long time. And this was a taped recording of what rare birds had been seen uh, in the last week or so. Right. And he set one up in uh, Golden Gate Audubon Society's office in in Berkeley. And uh, after about uh, six months, he left the Bay Area and uh, did not uh, run it. And it was called, uh, I don't know, the Bay Area Bird Alert or something like that. And it was a recorded message like we used to call up the to find out what movies were playing. Right. This is exactly like that. It was just a call up to find out what rare birds were around. And I was asked by uh, a, a couple of times if I would be willing to take it over. And I, I said, no, I didn't think I was qualified and I didn't really uh, want to particularly do it. But I got cajoled into doing it and uh, it became pretty popular. This was just volunteer work that I was doing. And mm-hmm. uh, I saw that there was a slight advantage to me to being sort of at the center of this and that people would call me up and tell me about what I what, what they'd been seeing. Sure. And so I would have uh, early leads on uh, on where the rarities might be. So then an adult school, the Castro Valley Adult School, contacted uh, our education chair uh, who knew me. Um, about offering a bird watching class at Castro Valley. Okay. And I went down and I interviewed for it and I taught it during the summer. They paid me $8 an hour, which I was happy to get. Sure. <laughs> at that time. And um, uh, the, the, the place just, you know, uh, uh, it, it was overwhelming the number of people that showed up for that first class. Wow. Uh, they were really surprised how popular it was, and there clearly was a major need for that. Uh, so then I expanded and uh, uh, started teaching classes at other adult schools, the Albany Adult School and the Piedmont Adult School. Uh, this is in 1976, 77. 
Okay. And, and then because I had been doing that so successfully, when um, it's uh, actually City College of San Francisco, it's a two-year college. Okay. Uh, it's not a university. And uh, they called and they wanted uh, somebody to teach uh, over there. And, uh, and, I, and I decided, yeah, um, because for one thing, they were going to pay me twice as much as any of these other places did. And the classes were going to be offered for free. Uh, so the students didn't have to pay. So I thought that was going to be the better deal. Very and, nice. Uh, yeah, it was very nice for a brief period of time. And uh, I went over there and um, they scheduled this class and they put me in a classroom with like 25 desks and 60 people showed up <laughs> and you know there's this just an amazing demand and they had to move me into a into a uh, a choral room you know a music room with a stage okay. and all of that uh to make room for everybody and so i started to expand out and uh drop the uh classes in the east bay the uh the uh, adult school classes and just concentrated on the uh, San Francisco um, uh, community college classes. Uh, I eventually settled on teaching like three classes a night. I was teaching Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and offering field trips on weekends. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, these were, you know, just two and a half hour evening classes. So I was just basically working part time. But uh, I, I did not actually need to have uh, a master's degree in biology in order to teach these adult school, school classes. Right. Uh, th this particular community college is different uh, in that uh, the adult school classes are handled through the community college instead of through the high, the, the, the high school district. Okay. So I, I had no idea I was going to do that, but uh, I started in 1978, and uh, I think it was uh, uh, just a couple of years ago that I finally retired. So it was a, a long period of time. <laughs> Sounds like maybe two generations of uh, uh, Bay Area birders got their start with you. A lot of people got their start with me, and uh, some of them have gone on to teach classes on their own, and I love that. You know, that's just uh, you know a, a grand thing. So, uh, it, it you know it couldn't have been better. You know, for me, uh, of uh, the 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 job, uh, it wasn't work. It was it was just always a lot of fun. You know, it's just a great thing. I always look forward to those classes. So were your classes a series of uh, evening classes or was that a one class does all or how did that work? No, no, no. I, I was teaching like uh, like 14 week semesters. Oh, okay. Uh, so it was a, yeah. like a college course almost. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. But Very it was cool. not it was not usually offered for credit. Some people right. managed to get a little high school credit out of it. But uh, mostly it was uh, it was just, you know, it was um, for enrichment i suppose or whatever Adult education sure very nice exactly exactly yeah very nice uh do you remember any students in particular that uh that uh started with you and went on to become avid birders oh i uh i can think of several probably um mac mccormick was a a, a 
great supporter. He, he, you know, my, my teaching methods kind of changed. He told me that we, everybody was terrified of me at the first. So, <laughs> it's like, because I, I'd ask them what they'd seen and they, you know, and, uh, and then I'd ask them like, well, how did you know it was that? Or what did it look like? Or something terrible that they <laughs> we were afraid to answer. So um, uh, Alan Hopkins uh, has uh, done great work in San Francisco over the years. Uh, Alice Hoke uh, started teaching class. I'm not sure what happened to her. Uh, some of these people have died. A lot of them are, you know, I, sure. was, I was a kid basically when I started doing this. Right. John Muir Laws. I've got his field guide to uh, the Sierra Nevada right here. He took my class. Mm -hmm. um, there's uh, a, a number of, uh, of people that, uh, that took classes to um, get extra knowledge. They were working for um, the uh, parks department. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, wanted to get to know birds. Uh, some people just got really, um, you know, hooked on it. And it was, you know, they were going to come Wednesday evening, hell or high water, and they would take the class for more than, see, it took eight years to finish my class. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. So, so this, was, was, this was a different kind of a class. See, I would go through, well, we started out with the Robbins Field Guide, you know, that mm -hmm. one. Sure. Um, but when the National Geographic came out, I adopted that. And we would do like a page out of that guide a day. And then what I do is I just show slides of those birds, talk about status and distribution, a little bit about their biology. And then I would review those birds like we would have quizzes. Mm -hmm. where you will have to uh, identify those birds. But then the quizzes became cumulative, like they would go back several right. weeks and not right. just the birds on that one page. But it mostly it took, we, we usually took like one or two pages an evening. So okay. I was able to talk about these birds in a lot of depth. Oh, uh, yeah. And, um, you know, not everybody wants that. But uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, it was what I wanted to do, and nobody seemed to complain. It was, the class was my own design. I didn't have, have to follow anybody else's syllabus or, mm -hmm. you know, figure out, you know, I did at one point, they wanted to know what were the goals of the class and what were the right. students able to do and all of that stuff. But mostly they just played hands off because they did not. You know, I got to tell you, in, in the 40 years that I taught classes, there was never an administrator that told me I was doing a good job. <laughs> they, they had no idea what kind of a job I was doing. I was out there, you know, uh, just doing my thing. And they didn't tell me I was doing a bad job either. Although, the, you know, if a class got low enrollment, I'd hear about it. Uh, but uh, that rarely happened. I think in the whole time, I think I had two classes canceled because of low enrollment. Yeah, sounds and, like it was pretty popular. I, I'm sure they were ecstatic that... Uh... You know, one of their metrics that are followed, I'm sure, is uh, how much outreach they get to the community, how many students they're bringing in. And I suspect that uh, you contributed to their to their numbers. Nice. Yeah, well, that's how they got paid originally called something called average daily attendance and the state funded it. That's how come it was free. But then they defunded this class oh. and, we, and they had to start charging for it. And uh, when they started charging for it, the enrollment immediately went up. <laughs> You get what you pay for. Everybody yeah. knows you get what you pay for. Sure. 
Yeah, <laughs> I think the best way to get people vaccinated for COVID is to start charging for it because people yeah. will pay for something uh, that they, you know, if you if you get it for free, they don't want it. You know? It can't be worth much if it's free. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. Uh, so where is uh, City College of uh, San Francisco? Is it right downtown? It's scattered all over the city. Oh, okay. so I'm mostly, different spaces. Yeah, I mostly taught in rented space from the Marina Middle School, um, but I did teach at the main campus, uh, the Ocean Campus, one summer, and I also taught downtown campus one time. Uh, and then I've taught more recently at something called the John Adams Community College Center. Uh, so it was in a variety of uh, uh, basically high schools uh, buildings. Very cool. So what did you study at MIT? What was your, uh, what was your field of study? Well, I wanted to be a physicist and, oh, okay. I, and I majored in physics, which I enjoyed immensely. Um, but I was also getting very active in the theater at the time that I was okay. there. And uh, I was participating in uh, lots of these little um, uh, shows. Uh, and uh, I was uh, pretty serious about it. And so I transferred over to get a degree in humanities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so <laughs> <Okay>. You started <laughs> in physics and switched to humanities. Okay. Yeah, I did. Well, I finally realized that a bachelor's degree in physics was not going to be able to get me a job as a physicist. I was going mm-hmm. to need to get a PhD at least. Right. And I got a little bit burned out on academics there, frankly, mm-hmm. although I do not regret any of those physics classes that I took at all. I enjoyed them all. And, uh, you know, I was good at math and I was good at, at uh, science and uh, I I wasn't sure what it is that I wanted to do. And biology um, was not really high on my radar. And there, the biology at MIT was highly theoretical anyway. Mm, so, okay. so, <laughs> um, uh, so uh, no, I, uh, I ended up being kind of set, you know, self-taught about, well, the birding, but I also, the introductory classes that I taught were actually, you know, pretty rigorous, the introductory birding classes, uh, with a lot of theory, a lot of uh, stuff about evolutionary biology, vicariance, mm-hmm. biogeography, things like this, uh, the kinds of things that explain the st- uh, distribution of wildlife around the world. And I, uh, you know, did some, some of my own reading. I was very enamored of a book, which I read twice called Animal Species and Evolution by Ernst mm-hmm. Mayer. Uh, which had a profound effect on my thinking about biology uh, and about the world around us. So uh, I conveyed some of that material to the to the students there. Um, and uh, so that's what I did. Sounds like you've got a textbook in your brain there. Well, you write <laughs> yeah, not, not really. But um, I've got uh, I, I can tell you this. There's a saying that if you want to learn a subject, teach it. For sure. Uh, and you really need to, you know, be prepared when somebody asks you, you know, why do hummingbirds make buzzing sounds with their wings? Mm-hmm. You, you know, well, you know, hey, you know, <laughs> I'm just because, <laughs> just because, yeah. So you get these questions and, um, you know, if you don't know the answer, you better say you don't know the answer. 
but um, we had we had very you know wide ranging discussions about lots and lots of things. And uh, I usually start the class because some people would invariably arrive late. So I would start the class with people's observations, and then mm -hmm. we would uh, expand out on uh, what those observations might uh, uh, imply or mean, and in uh, bigger sense. So uh, I, I, I would run off on tangents. And it was more like a seminar, really, than mm -hmm. uh, an organized, uh, an organized class. Sounds like it was fun. I, it, I can I can just tell from watching you and hearing you that you are animated about this. You're, this was good for you. It was it was great. Very cool. So you've gotten a chance to, to do a lot of birding in California. What, what about birding now gets you most excited? Are you still uh, into listing? Do you like uh, photography? Do you, uh, you know, like chasing rarities? What, what, what uh, gets you going about birding nowadays? Well, it, actually, it's very hard for me to get a state bird now. Sure. You know, I mean, uh, I, don't, I don't actually know what my state list is. Uh, I, I'm sorry to say as, as much as I was supposed to be into listing, uh, it, it never quite stuck. I, I kind of consider that to be a character defect of mine. But anyway, um, uh, what I've gotten interested in in uh, the, the COVID pandemic was photography. And although okay. I was interested in it a little bit more, I, you know, the opportunities for teaching had disappeared and the field trips had disappeared. And I discovered that there was new technology. And these are ultra zoom cameras, which mm -hmm. are fairly inexpensive. Yeah, and, they're lightweight too. Yeah. And they're lightweight. And you don't have to have a big lens that costs more than my car. Uh, to carry around uh, to take halfway decent photographs of lots of birds. And so when the pandemic began, I got started on a project and it wasn't organized as a project, but I wanted to take decent pictures of all of the common birds that live in this, in this area. So I was right. getting out almost every day and um, taking pictures and uh, processing them. I learned uh, a fair amount about how to do Photoshop. Mm -hmm. And um, I was getting pretty good, decent results. And I started sending out to a, a mailing list of my former students, uh, like a basically a bird of the day. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I, I just kind of wanted to have uh, a sort of a sense of normalcy that there's birds out there you know i mean there's a pandemic and all of this but there's still birds to be seen and mm -hmm. uh so i would sure i would go after rarities if they were photographable but i, I was just uh, as keen on getting uh, a picture of a wood duck or a, a golden crown kinglet or something like that as um, uh, a major rarity the major rarities well hey you don't see that many of them that's why they're called rare so, yeah for yeah, sure you know, so yeah so i uh uh have um uh gotten a, a number of different cameras i've got the the canon sx um 60 now which um uh i really uh i really kind of like uh and it's a it's a, a bridge camera it's an ultra zoom mm -hmm. uh but it you know, it, it fits in my hand. Mm -hmm. I don't have to lug this thing around. 
And uh, I'm I'm surprised at sometimes. So, you know, I mean, I sure I get a lot of bad pictures, but the, the trick is, of course, to take many, many, many pictures and mm-hmm. hope some, some of them are, are keepers. Exactly. So, yeah. So. You take enough pictures, some of them are bound to be good. That's my theory on digital cameras. It's, uh, yeah. you know, throwing them away doesn't cost much. Uh, so you've tried a number of point and shoot, you know, I call them point and shoot super zoom cameras. Right. Uh, and you like the, the Canon SX60. Uh, ha, have, uh, do you have any tips for those? I have to say, I, uh, I've used those and I have a, a Nikon SLR that I use too. And I love the fact that you don't have to you know, get a back rub when you come home after a day of birding with one of these things. They're lightweight and, and do really nicely. Do you have difficulty getting birds in a bush with them? I, for me, with, with those cameras, the hardest thing is getting focus on something that's uh, moving or in a bush. I, I do better with an SLR on those, but for pictures in the open, I think it's almost, get it, they're just as good. Yeah, you, you know what happens is sometimes the camera wants to focus on the background. Exactly. And if the bird is sitting on a wire and there's a big background behind it, uh, it won't pick up the bird. Mm-hmm. And um, I agree with you that there are um, uh, difficulties in in getting to do that. And uh, sometimes I find myself uh, trying to find something that's about the same distance as Mm -hmm. the bird that I can, you know, because these things focus on. Yeah. Yeah. These things autofocus and autofocus is, uh, you know, kind of a tricky thing. Um, And uh, so sometimes I, I have to do that. Uh, sometimes I just take blurry pictures, uh, you know, that happens. Sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I understand that even with a good DSLR camera and, oh. uh, and a strong lens, your people will still get blurry pictures, oh, you, know? I, you know? I get plenty of them for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, of them. Yeah, it's yeah. not easy. Get, getting focus on a bird in a bush is one of the most difficult things, I think, for uh, someone who's not a pro. And, and you know, I think, People have different strategies, but it's not easy. Not easy. Yeah. Uh, so you taught for a lot of years. Do you have any tips for people who teach a birding class? What What would you give your three three pointers for somebody who's going to teach a, a beginning birding class or an intermediate birding class? Oh gosh, um, here's what I think. I think you need to play to your own strengths and pay no attention to what other people tell you to do. You know, that's that's the key thing. There wasn't not everybody liked my classes. And I realized early on that pleasing everybody is a fool's errand. So I did what I wanted to do. And I think that's what people should do. You should, if possible, um, do it the way you want to do it. And um, if some people want something else, uh, they want you to, uh, you know, emphasize um jizz birding or you know the shapes of birds or whatever uh you know that's fine if you want to do that if that's what it is that you want to focus on uh but the the best thing is for you to be enthusiastic about what it is that you're uh interested in and convey that enthusiasm to uh, other people naturally not forced or anything like that but just because you're obsessed by this uh you can convey that obsession to uh to other people uh that's about all i would say um uh i like conversation i don't like particularly lecturing all of that so i will often ask students uh you know 
questions about uh, uh, whatever it is that might be on their mind and uh, try to encourage uh, class participation uh, wherever possible. And those conversations can often lead to interesting um, places that I'd never even thought about before sometimes. Uh, so that's about all I would say about that. Uh, I, I really, um, I, I have like 8,000 slides. <laughs> I was slides? Teaching, I was teaching with <laughs> slides. Oh my goodness. Up, up until the end, I was not about to digitize 8,000 slides uh, to move to, uh, to digital uh, photography. Now all I do is digital photography, but right. I'm, not, I'm not teaching anymore. So I'm, I'm still teaching, I suppose, you know, in the sense that whenever I go out, uh, you know, we're having conversations and teaching is a two-way thing. You learn from your students too, you know? So, For sure. Yeah. Good. Do you lead a lot of field trips now or not too much? Uh, I, I, I mean, was, COVID uh, is an issue, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, lately, I've had some uh, leg issues and I have oh. not, not been able to get out hiking much. And most of the birding I'm doing, I'm sorry to say, is actually from my car window. So uh, I've um, uh, just gotten a new medical procedure that's supposed to be helping with this. And uh, we'll see. But um, uh, right now, no, I'm not not leading any kind of field trips. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you birded much around the country or around the world or mostly in California? Yeah, uh, w- we've done some, uh, we went to Texas in, um, in, uh, April this year and, nice. uh, we had a great time and, um, uh, we did a trip up to Yosemite in June and that was great. Um, and in the past we've done, um, uh, Ohio a couple of times, which uh, uh, is a wonderful place in migration. But uh, some years back, uh, we started doing uh, international birding. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, we did our own, our first trip was a trip to Australia, which we did on our own, uh, figuring that, um, you know, we could probably do that since they almost speak English in Australia. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, um, so we uh, uh, stayed at a, a couple of birding lodges, and uh, I was doing digiscoping back in those days. That's oh, sure. When got, that's when I got really started in photography. I would, you know, use a, a spotting scope and a small handheld digital camera to, to uh, shoot through the, the spotting scope. And right. I, got to, I got to be amazingly good at that. Uh, I don't do it anymore, but uh, or rarely will I do that anymore. Uh, mostly because my digiscoping cameras have all gone kaput. But anyway, we did Australia and then we got more interested in it and started going on some uh, tours. And we did a rock jumper tour to South Africa. Uh, and then um, we did another tour from some other company, Sunrise, I think, to Thailand. Um, and more recently, uh, we did a, a trip to Japan with uh, Al Jaramillo. Uh, some years ago, I did a trip to Bolivia with uh, Al Jaramillo. That was many years ago, and he was working for a company called Eagle Eye Tours. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, we did a, a rock trumper trip to, um, to India, which is amazing, amazing place, you know. I've and, heard. 
Yeah, it's just uh, astonishing. It's scary, but it's astonishing. You get used to it. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's just like you know, the little dance that the buses do when they come crashing towards each other and then they split apart as you're uh, driving down the down the highway. And the the trains were quite an experience taking the trains in, in India. Uh, and we also did a trip. A friend of mine, uh, uh, Ed uh, Ed uh, Harper, uh, has a small bird tour company and we did a trip to Tanzania with him that was fantastic that was just a wonderful place getting out in the Serengeti that was oh like time, that was like 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 time travel to me because you know there was this megafauna on the planet that disappeared at the time of the ice ages you know oh, there it was yeah. all, all these mammoths and tigers and stuff you know were right. in, they were in North America they were in mm -hmm. uh, in Asia and they disappeared but they stayed that's the same megafauna basically that stayed in the Serengeti you know where there's giraffes and you know lions and you know elephants and all of this kind of stuff it's like time travel it's like going back to the pleistocene uh to uh to visit a place like that it, it was for me anyway and uh, so yeah we ended up with uh you know we have enough money now so that we can uh travel like that and uh we want to get it done while we can while we're for still, sure you know more or less ambulatory and because, uh, you know, you wait too long, uh, it's not going to happen. The other thing that I got kind of uh, interested in was uh, cruise ships. Oh, yes. Uh, and um, I'm not sure why it was, but I had this idea. I wanted to go on a cruise ship to Antarctica. Mm -hmm. oh, I know what happened. I know what happened. OK, so I. It was time to buy a car, and I've always bought a car that was like at least two years old. Mm -hmm. And my uh, partner, my wife, she said, um, you deserve to buy a new car. So I buy this new car, and then in the mail comes this thing that says, uh, please tell us about your new car buying experience. Well, nobody else wanted to know anything about my new car buying experience, so I figured if these people want to know, I'll tell them. So I fill out this form about my new car buying experience, send it mm -hmm. in, forget about it. Three months later, the doorbell rings. It's a certified letter from some company called Hello World. I never heard of this company. I says, uh-oh. So I open up this letter and it says, congratulations, you are the grand prize winner. <laughs> I said, what? I'm not the grand prize winner of anything. You know, I'm certainly not a grand prize winner. Anyway, turns out there was a sweepstakes attached to that form that I filled out, and I was the grand prize winner. Wow. And, and so I had this money that my wife wanted me to spend. She wanted me to spend it on her, but that actually didn't matter what, what happened. She didn't <laughs> want to go on a cruise for some reason, and I wanted to go on a cruise to Antarctica. I wanted to visit Antarctica, and I tried to go on a trip that was uh, offered by wings and it was full. Okay. And so I decided to just go on my own on a uh, cruise ship that was uh, run by Holland America. And it left from Valparaiso, Chile. Mm -hmm. It stopped in uh, a bunch of places in Chile. And uh, then it went across the, um, uh, uh, the strait there to Antarctica and spent three days in Antarctica. Wow. And I had my scope and I was setting up my scope on the deck and we were looking at penguins and people were lining up 
And uh, I would say, you know, uh, did you get a good look? And they would say yes. And I'd say, well, that'll be $10, please. But no, I didn't do that. The, um, the, um, uh, I, I do remember, though, some woman was looking at these penguins through the scope and she says, well, they're not doing anything. And I said, <laughs> Well, what did you expect? Happy feet? You know, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like, really? anyway, it turns out they had a naturalist on board who was a very serious birder from, uh, oh, ah, cool. from, from um, um, Ireland. And um, he was, he was just a, a joy to uh, have around and he was giving, you know, different programs included some bird programs. And I was, I ended up being the bird person there, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. people thought, people thought I was actually working for the, the, the you know, cause I'm, I'm out there shouting out albatrosses and stuff, you know, sure. and, and uh, uh, you know, I don't care, you know, I'm, I, uh, I'm, I'm happy to <laughs> yell. It's like some Something automatic you know yeah. when i when i see a really cool bird i yell it out whether yeah. there's anybody there or not sure know? why not <laughs> why not so you're on a on an antarctic cruise wow i uh i would for two consecutive years my uh antarctic cruise sort of the aba the aba was running an antarctic cruise and after actually alvaro uh, Hermia was uh, the person I signed up through, and for two straight years, it's gotten postponed. So maybe next year I'll get to do that. We'll see. Oh, it's been postponed again, huh? Yeah, this this falls was uh, postponed, so two years in a row. Bummer, but that's a uh, first world problem. I uh, have gotten lots of good birding in locally. Uh, so, uh, what's you said? You're hoping to get some trips in while you can still do them. What's what's your next dream trip, Joe? What's what's up for you? We have scheduled two trips. Well, we've got a, a, a cruise ship on. Um, this is on uh, Silver Seas, um, which is kind of a high end. Uh, this is a um, an expedition ship. Okay. And it holds, I don't know, only a, a couple of hundred people. Mm -hmm. And you can get off on Zodiacs and things like that. And it's all inclusive. And it starts, I think, in Buenos Aires and ends mm -hmm. up in some some little place up in Brazil. Oh, wow. And, uh, that's scheduled uh, for um, next uh, summer, I believe, maybe March. I'm not okay. sure. I'm not sure. I'd have to look it up when that's scheduled for. Um, and then we also have um, for, I think, next year, one of them's the year after, uh, is uh, a trip to Namibia. We were originally scheduled to do Namibia, um, uh, I think, uh, this year, and uh, it got canceled. And uh, so we've rebooked, and I think that's going to be 2023. Uh, we also have a trip to Sri Lanka uh, uh, booked uh, with Rock Jumper. Um, and those are the ones that I'm aware of uh, right now. We would like to go back to Australia. I would like to do Western Australia. I've done Eastern Australia twice. Oh, wow. Uh, Good for you. Yeah. But um, yeah, Australia is just fantastic. Uh, yeah. There's just lots and lots of birds. Many of them are really easy to see and easy to photograph. And there's just lots of bird life around. And uh, the whole country is very easy to navigate, too. So. Yeah. 
Very cool. So you've got lots of fun lined up. Good for you. Uh, John, I'm going to kind of switch subject just a little bit. You've been on the records committee, the Bird Records Committee in California for quite a while. I'm on the WASP board, Washington Ornithological Society board, not as any kind of an expert, just because I didn't say no. Uh, and uh, we, one of our tasks recently was to rewrite the bylaws and policies for our Bird Records Committee. And we kind of uh, used uh, the California Records Committee as a model for doing that. And, and uh, thanks to a lot of good work by some of the me committee members, uh, got that done recently. What, what has it been like being on the Records Committee? What, what does that job entail for you and do you enjoy it? I'm no longer on the Records Committee. Okay. Um, and um, I, um, uh, when I first got on the Records Committee, it was a thrill. Um, first off, to be recognized by my peers mm -hmm. as being qualified to, to be there. The other uh, opportunity was to just bird watch with those guys. It was just, uh, you know, uh, uh, an amazing opportunity to go out with people like John Dunn and, you know, Paul Lehman and, and people like that. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I learned a lot. Uh, a lot of stuff that was not in the books in those days. The, the books are so advanced now. There's so much more knowledge about uh, what, um, uh, how to identify difficult species like Impidinax flycatchers and, uh, um, you know, female uh, teal. And, uh, you know, just lots and lots of um, advances have been made, I think, uh, over what we knew. Uh, starting back in the in the 70s and 60s. Right. Um, and, uh, it, it, you know, just the, the, the overall knowledge has increased. And a lot of that sort of developed, some of that developed through the records committees. Um, and just, it was just a, a privilege to be a, a part of all of that. Um, it was um, uh, kind of time consuming. We reviewed lots and lots of records. And we sent them around by mail. This is before the internet sure. existed. And uh, so you'd get these big packages in the mail uh, with these uh, records. And then you would type up your comments and send them into the to the secretary. And then the records we would send on, you know, I mean, we were paying like $5 a clip just to mail a package of records to the next person in line. Right. And it, it took a little while to do that. Nowadays, the records all go out to everybody simultaneously. Uh, everybody's voting simultaneously. Everything is digital now. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's much, much more efficient than it was uh, back in the old days. Um, but uh, yeah, I, uh, I enjoyed it. I believed in the process. Now there's some uh, talk that we don't really need records committees anymore. Everything's in eBird and um, uh, eBird is one level. Uh, pe some people don't understand what the purpose of a records committee is. Um, my thinking of it is, is it provides peer review. That is, you know, are you convinced? It doesn't mean that the person didn't see the bird. It just means, is there documentation here that um, is satisfactory to convince you that this is a record that we could put in here in the books and say, this is a good record? Because we're not doing a lot of specimen-based research anymore. You know, it's no. not happening. It's mostly site records and photographic records. And, uh, and nowadays, uh, almost all of it is, is photographic, you know, it's- And it's recordings. Kind of, and yeah, audio recordings. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Voice recordings, too. Uh, we're getting a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, it's sadly getting to the point where if there is no photo, 
people don't want to submit it. Uh, they figure it's not worth it, you know, uh, and uh, I think that's kind of too bad. The art of writing a bird description is um, maybe getting lost. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I kind of liked writing descriptions. I used to be pretty good at that. Uh, and I used to post these descriptions to uh, a, uh, a mailing list called Bird Chat in mm -hmm. the old days. Sure. And I would, you know, uh, and some people wrote to me and they said, you know, reading those reports that you post, that changed the way I bird. I said, wow, you know, really? You know, it's because I'm looking at tertials and different feather tracks and describing this, that, and the other thing. And they had never thought about looking at birds in that detailed kind of way, trying to take them apart and put them back together again. And uh, um, so um, it, it, it's a, it's a skill set that I'm afraid is kind of getting lost. That, uh, and I'm, I'm guilty of this, too. I mean, when I see, uh, you know, when I went to that thick-billed kingbird the other day, uh, I saw it, and the first thing I wanted to do was pull out my camera and take pictures. For I, sure. didn't, I did not really want to spend a lot of time staring at it through binoculars and making notes of uh, what the uh, details of the bird were. I wanted to get that recording on the camera. Uh, and if that's for better or for worse, uh, that's where we are these days, I, I think. Um, anyway, um, eventually I got kind of just, um, I don't want to say bored with it, but uh, it, it got kind of uh, to the point where I really didn't want to do that much uh, on the records committee anymore. I didn't feel like it was accomplishing a whole lot. Uh, but I, I decided I wanted to do more instead of less, and I became the chair of the committee, uh, okay. which um, uh, was a uh, fascinating experience. It got me a little bit more into politics than I wanted to get into, uh, but uh, I was chair of the committee for three years, and after that, I, I basically retired off the committee. Uh, so uh, that was a, a very interesting experience. I had to deal somewhat with the um, board of WFO, mm -hmm. uh, who were uh, had issues with the way certain things were happening. And um, uh, anyway, uh, and right now, I am just their webmaster. And, oh, okay. that, and that allows me to be connected. I see these records coming through. I look at them. I see a whole bunch of, uh, you know, here's 10 records of Mexican duck. And I just say, oh, God, I'm so glad I don't have to vote on these Mexican ducks. You know? <laughs> really? really? Oh, man. You know, it seems like almost all of the stuff that's going through these days is like they're Mexican ducks or it's glossy ibis, which mm -hmm. might be hybrids or, yeah. um, um, you know, they might be um, uh, mask boobies or they might be Nazca, Nazca. boobies. Yeah boobies you know and these things are being circulated ad nauseum and i'm just so thrilled not to have to deal with a big batch of those records anymore <laughs> i hear you yeah i hear you my uh my uh I, i'm not uh, a really top birder by a long shot and uh my bird records committee uh experience is that uh, there was an 
what we thought was an alder flycatcher up here a few years ago. Yeah, we get willow flycatchers by the gazillion, but alder flycatchers, there haven't been many in Washington. I think maybe one or two records or something. And there was a, a flycatcher every, everyone thought was an alder flycatcher. And I went up and saw it with Bruce Labar, who's a friend of mine. And we, uh, uh, we, and we got on it. We just got you know great pictures. And I had my iPhone. I had a new iPhone. I got some pretty good recordings of this bird, and it sounded perfect to us. We thought, oh boy, we've got it. And so I submit my audio recordings to the Bird Records Committee, and uh, the Bird Records Committee says, well, yeah, it's probably good. And they send it off some experts somewhere who decides this is a hybrid uh, alder by willow flycatcher and took oh the bird off God. my list. They oh took my. the bird off my list based on my audio recording. So I screwed myself of a state bird by getting a good audio recording. Oh my God. <laughs> oh. oh my God. I can tell you an Impidnac story uh, if you want. I don't sure. Know. It was some years ago and there was, there was in this canyon in San Diego, there was this Impidnac that John Dunn thought might be a pine flycatcher. Oh yeah. Which would be new to North America. Right. And I think wasn't there just one down in Texas yeah, just recently or there, there Arizona was, or Texas? Ar Arizona, Arizona had, yeah. Arizona had one a few years ago. But uh, this is something that, you know, I guess he had identified them as pine flycatchers in Mexico. And this mm -hmm. one sounded like that. And uh, we happened to be down there with Rich Stalkup and um, um, a bunch of other uh, people uh, from the records committee were down there. And um, they decided that this is a bird that needed to be collected to be identified. Right. And Guy McCaskey had the only collecting permit that uh, uh, we could use. And he was interested in it. He was going to send the specimen down to uh, Alan Phillips, okay. uh, who was uh, uh, a kind of a, a crank uh, living in Mexico, uh, <laughs> who had uh, uh, a lot to say about the AOU. But anyway, this is a, a, the, the one person that could probably identify this bird. And uh, so uh, a bunch of phone calls were made to the local people saying, we're going to go and maybe collect this bird. So if you want to see it before it dies, uh, you know, meet us here. And so we go around and we get there and we look at this bird and we see this bird calling. And it sounded to me like a Hammond's flycatcher. Mm -hmm. So anyway, uh, everybody was all ready to collect this bird and they decided to have a vote. Are we going to collect this bird? And everybody voted to collect this bird, except me. I raised my hand. I know I don't. I don't think we need to collect this bird. And Rich Stalkup, who was you know right in the middle of this and did not really want to be offending me or mm -hmm. anybody else, said that he appreciated where I was coming from, but in this particular case, he thought it was important. And so, a guy went and got his gun. Guy mm -hmm. McCaskey. Right. And everybody else went off somewhere else. And I went with Guy to help him catch to shoot right. that bird. I was the only I, you know, if he was going to shoot that bird, I wanted to see him shoot it, you know. Sure. And he shot it and he shot the head clean off of it. Oh my goodness. He had bird shot that was too large or something or other. It was not the right <laughs> size bird shot to shoot. It is unidentifiable. Well, it actually was identifiable. Okay. 
Yeah, Phil Phil Unit was able to identify it when he got it into the museum, and it turned out to be a Hammond's flycatcher, which is what I thought it was the whole time. Oh, funny. <laughs> but it was an interesting experience, you know. I've only seen maybe two birds collected in my whole life mm -hmm. for right. scientific purposes. Many years ago, I went out of San Diego on a pelagic trip that I got mm -hmm. invited on, uh, and um, Joe Gell, who was the curator of um, of birds there at the San Diego Museum at the time, collected a, well, we called them Manx shearwaters back in those days, but they're right. actually black vented black shearwaters. Black vented now, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and I was looking at this thing and go, blast, you know, <laughs> there it is, you know, and they dipped, they, they took a dip net and, and pulled it out. Um, so it's uh, been a long time since uh, we've had to uh, uh, that kind of thing happening in, in California. It doesn't happen very much in the United States, still happens in Alaska, I think, and probably Louisiana. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that there certainly was a place for it and probably remains a place, but it's uh, pretty uncommon to, to really need to do that with digital photography and that sort of thing. And also now you can mess that a bird and collect a feather and get the DNA. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's been done. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so way cool. Uh, so Joe, really nice to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Do you have any other things you want to add before we uh, before we wrap this up? Any topics you want to cover that I might have missed or stories that you think you'd like to share? Well, I can't really think of anything. It's been fun. Yeah. Thank you very much. Good. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, if anyone wanted to reach out to you, what would be the best way to get a hold of you, Joe? fog.ccsf.edu slash tilde j morland slash yeah got it and it has an it has an email address that's uh, usable uh, uh on on there too perfect well that'd be the way for people to get a hold of you that's terrific joe been really fun talking to you you're a good storyteller and obviously passionate about birds and it's really fun to have someone with those uh those uh attributes on the show i appreciate it Thanks for being on. Well, that wraps up the Bird Banner Podcast, episode number 117 with Joe Moreland. Thanks for listening. As always, you can visit the blog post on birdbanner.com to see more details about the topics we discussed. In the podcast notes are linked to Joe's website, where you can contact him if you like. If you have suggestions for guests you'd like to hear from on the podcast, send me a message from the contact page on birdbanner.com or direct message me on at birdbanner on either Facebook or Twitter. So thanks for listening. Until next time, good birding. Good day. <laughs>